I know it's been a couple weeks since we have been in the book of Acts. And so as we're heading into this sermon, I wanted to take a brief opportunity and just kind of recap where we've been. It's been a little bit since we've been in Acts, and I know there's new people here today. So let me catch you up where we are in the context of Acts. And if you really want to understand the book of Acts, it begins all the way at the start. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where God, Jesus makes a promise before he ascends into heaven. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the remotest parts of the earth. I mean, the Holy Spirit was promised in large part to empower us for the role that Jesus gave us before he descended, ascended into heaven. And then for 21 chapters, we've been reading how God has been doing that in the midst of his people, in the lives of his people. It started at Jerusalem spread into Judea, where just in a short amount of time, the gospel just spread throughout that region to the point where it impacted the very culture that existed in that area to the, de to the degree that the Jewish leaders at the time decided that they rejected the message and they empowered this persecution of Christians around the entire region but as often in scripture, what man intends for evil, God purposes for good. And, and Jews spread, Christians spread throughout the region, proclaiming the glory of God, the testimony of the gospel. We begin to see the church spread into regions like Samaria, Antioch. They're even interacting with international leaders coming in, sharing the gospel to where then the gospel spread into other aspects of the globe. And we begin to see the message of God and the gospel spreading, not just through the region, but through the world. And then Paul began these missionary journeys. And that's where we finished up last week. As Paul was wrapping up his third missionary journey, here was the map that we followed. It was a journey that began with Paul's desire to just strengthen and encourage Christians and churches that he'd interacted with in the previous missionary journeys. But it ended as kind of like a farewell tour. If you remember, Paul began to communicate to his friends, they're not going to see him again. He began to communicate to them that the Holy Spirit was telling him that when he gets to Jerusalem, there's going to be hardship and trials. And every place he stopped, Christians were saying, Paul, don't go. Paul, please don't go. And every time Paul kept communicating, no, no, I'm okay with suffering for the gospel. Like Paul just seemed focused on going to Jerusalem, knowing there's going to be challenge and difficulty. Paul had this heart to go anyway. And I've shared this verse with you, and it, in uh, 1 Corinthians, it really describes Paul's heart. He says this, for though I am free from all men, I've made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews to those who are under the law. As under the law, though not being myself under the law, Paul continues, says, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the laws, without the law. He continues that I might win those who are without the law. And then he finishes it this way. He says, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men. So I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. So I may become a fellow partaker of it. 
Paul is bought in. He is committed. He is sold out. Look, I don't care what happens to me. I'm about the gospel, and I will become anything I need to be, and I will do anything that's necessary in order to proclaim the gospel to as many people as possible. And we shouldn't be surprised by Paul's attitude and his philosophy when we're going through the book of Acts. Paul's saying, this is what I'm about. And come hell or high water, I'm going to be about it. Well, he finally got to Jerusalem the last week that we were in Acts. He got to Jerusalem, met with the leaders there in Jerusalem, and those leaders asked Paul to take a step of compromise to try to make peace. See, there are Jews in the area who thought that Paul was preaching against the law of Moses and and telling everyone to abandon the Old Testament law. And so these Christian leaders asked Paul, Paul, will you go through an expensive and extensive purification rite? And it took a lot of humility, it took a lot of money for Paul to go through this process. And and we, you got to remember, Paul didn't have anything to be purified from. His heart was right before the Lord. He wasn't required to go through these, but out of a desire for peace. Remember, Paul said, I'll do anything possible. Another aspect of scripture, Paul said this, as far as it depends on you, when possible, be at peace with all men. So Paul bent over backwards, going through these ceremonies, trying to make peace with with some of the Jews in Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up our story. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 21. The book of Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. We're in Acts chapter 21. If you're someone who keeps flipping, see how many chapters, how long is this sermon series going to go? There are 28 chapters. We're almost there. Here's where we pick up the story, Acts 21. Paul just finished the purification rites, hoping for peace, trying to have unity with all the believers in the area. After all of Paul's work, after bending over backwards, here's what happens, verse 27, Acts 21, verse 27. When the seven days were almost over of that purification ceremony, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So after all of Paul's efforts, after all of bending over backwards, after the extensive thing, people just happened to see Paul in the temple. And I love this. The Bible says they supposed that Paul had brought Trophimus into the temple area. A term supposed, by the way, means to presume to know. They assumed it happened. They imagined in their head that it occurred. They didn't even know. They didn't take time to understand. They didn't attempt to figure out what actually happened. They heard these rumors, they jumped to conclusions, and they went bananas. That's what happened. And I was reading this this week, and I was thinking, man, are we ever guilty of supposing What do you think? I mean, social media and news outlets and all the talking heads that we listen to. I mean, we hear one person's description of someone else's heart and man, we as Christians, we launch, right? It doesn't take long for a pastor to become a heretic, a politician to be treasonous, 
a neighbor to be a pervert. I mean, just like this. I want to encourage you with the words that I think Scripture encourages us. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Man, it's so easy to judge these Jews as they're supposing what Paul had done. And I was thinking this week, man, how often do we as Christians in churches suppose, jump to conclusions, start demonizing others in something that we don't even really understand and have taken the time to research ourselves? Public service announcement over. Let's continue. Verse 30, look, here's what happens. Everyone's going bananas. Verse 30, then all the city was provoked. The people rushed together, taking hold of Paul. They dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. I mean, this thing took off, and all of a sudden there's this riot. Verse 32, at once he took along some soldiers and centurions. Most people believe over 200 Roman soldiers were called into this. This is how bananas it went. They ran down to them and they saw the commander and the soldiers. They stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up, took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, one on each arm. And he began asking who... Uh, who he was and what he had done. Verse 34, look at this. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing, some another. And when they could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob for the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting away with him. I mean, all of a sudden, so what happens is there's this, people are supposing that Paul did something. No one took time to understand it. All of a sudden, the entire area of Jerusalem went bananas where 200 plus Roman soldiers had to come in and make peace. The Roman soldiers were asking what's going on and some people were saying one thing, some people were saying another. I think it was Benjamin Benjamin. Benjamin Franklin, who described a riot this way, a riot is something with many heads, but no brains. I mean, that's what happened. All of a sudden, everyone, just because one or two people supposed, everyone went bananas, everyone's coming against it, everyone's shouting something else, everyone's mad about something different, no one knows what's going on, and we're thinking, oh, we've heard this before, haven't we? Just a few chapters earlier, Paul in Ephesus Ephesus or Acts chapter 19. When they heard this, they were filled with rage and began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus. Paul's traveling commanded from Macedonia. When Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples wouldn't let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs were friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. Continue, he said, so then some were shouting one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. The majority did not know for what reason they'd come together. Now all of a sudden, everyone's mad, no one knows why. It happened in Ephesus, and now it happens in Jerusalem. Man, if I was Paul, I'd got to be shaking my head. He's been lied about, he's been beaten, now he's been arrested all because these individuals suppose something happened. And you got to know, Paul had never taught against the Old Testament law. We went into his heart saying, listen, for the Jews, I became a Jew. 
For the Gentiles, I preach as a Gentile. I just want people to see Jesus as I do. Every time Paul went into a new city, he started with the synagogue. He had a heart to reach the people of God with the message of God, with the message of salvation. If I was Paul, here we go again. Another mob, more lies, and being beaten again, and being arrested again. And if I was Paul, I'd be upset. If I was Paul, I'd be washing my hands of him. I'm out, I'm done. I don't need this. That's the great thing about this passage. Right then again, at the lowest time of Paul's ministry, look what happens. Verse 37. As Paul's about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? I mean, I mean the, the Roman soldier doesn't even know who Paul is. There's all these rumors flying around. Verse 39, but Paul said, I'm a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no significant, insignificant city, and I beg you, let me speak to the people. Can you imagine Paul's heart? You drag me out of here. You tell lies about me. You beat me. You get me arrested. I'm not sure I have the heart to preach, to be honest. Paul, let me talk to him. Verse 40, when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hands. And when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect. I mean, he started to speak their language. I mean, you can see Paul's heart coming out of here. Look at chapter 22, starting at verse 1. Here's how he begins. Mouth swollen, probably has blood coming down his mouth and his nose right? And eyes kind of starting to swell up. Remember, they've been beating him. A mob has been beating him. The soldiers had to carry him out because of the violence. And Paul, sitting up there on this kind of balcony, hushes the people and says, please let me talk. Look at what he says. Verse 20, or chapter 22, verse 1. He says, brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer. That term defense, by the way, Term means he wants to reason with the people. He wants to talk it out. He wants to help them see the things the way he does. Even there in the midst of the emotion, after all that they've done, you see Paul's heart coming out. Please, let me help you see things as I do. You're supposing, you're not understanding. After all that violence, after the riots, after the lies, after the beating, after the arrest, Paul start, still has his heart to give a testimony, testimony of mercy. That's what I call it. Because everyone would understand if Paul's like, I'm done, I don't want to talk to you. But not Paul. Paul seems to always be ready to give a defense for how he sees life. And I, I was thinking this week, you know, that's, that's the same call for us. You know that? Like that's an expectation that God has for each and every one of us. What we're witnessing in Paul isn't something reserved for superstars. It's supposed to be a heart for all of us. 
The Apostle Peter wrote this to some early Christians in the midst of this deep and, and difficult time of persecution. They were going through it. Look at what Peter says. He wrote to them in the midst of their own persecution and struggle. He said, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. He continues, he says, by the way, keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. I wonder if Peter has in mind what Paul did in this section. Always be ready to give a defense. Not be defensive. Always be ready to help other people see Jesus the way you do. Always help them understand. Always be ready to help them see the hope of salvation like you do. The confidence in God's sovereignty as you do. The power to forgive those who wrong you. Help people see, always be ready to give a defense. Man, why do you do that? How can you be so calm? Why do you make those decisions? Always be ready. In every situation, Paul's testimony had three parts. I love how Paul jumps in. He says, let me give you my testimony. And he starts with his religious zeal. He said, here's my life, verse two. When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. All of a sudden, questions start coming in. Oh, maybe he's not a Gentile conspirator like we thought. Oh, maybe Paul's not so bad like he's talking our language. He's one of us. Paul continues, he says this, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel. We've talked about Gamaliel a number of times. One of the most, if not the greatest Jewish teacher of their era. He was respected by everybody, loved by all. I mean, he was like the premier education of the best students in the area. Paul's like, listen, I went to the best schools. I mean, I trained under Gamaliel. Listen, he continues, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you are today. The term zealous phrase means he was passionately committed to the point that everything in his life revolved around his pursuit and pleasure of God. Paul's explaining, listen, I'm the poster boy of Jewish excellence. I brought up and I was focused. Everything in my life was about this moment. Look at how he describes it, Philippians chapter three. Look how he describes his life. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Look, and I came from great stock. I was from the noble line. I did everything the right way. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. Man, I was trained in this. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Look, I did everything the right way. You want to know about the poster boy of Jewish life. Paul says, it was me. 
He's looking at the people saying, listen, I get you. I understand why you're here. I understand what you're doing to the point I've done everything you've done and more. And look how he described it, verse 4. I was so zealous. I was so zealous, verse 4. I persecuted this way. To the death, that term persecuted. I hunted them down. I chased them down with the intention of doing bodily harm and even death. That's what Paul's saying. I was so zealous for God. I was so committed to our path. I killed other people who were standing in the midst, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. As also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them, I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. Paul starts saying, you need to know my life, who I was before Jesus. I was just like you, but more. You're pursuing God, I pursued God more. You were zealous for purity, I was zealous even more. Man, you think you're the first one here to think about killing someone about what they're saying? That was my job. I did that. But then look at the first word of verse 6. It's a huge biblical butt right there. Paul says, this was the path I was on. I was a persecutor of the way. I was trying to please God through my own life, but it happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. Paul says, and those who were with me saw a light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to him, get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. Paul said, but since I could not see, because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Paul said, I was, I was on this path. Everything was lining up. I thought I was doing the right thing, but then God pursued me. But then God intervened. Man, have you ever experienced that? You think you have everything worked out in your head? You have your life planned out? You know how everything's going to work out? You're supposing everything is true in your mind? And then, but God intervenes and opens your eyes and everything changes. I feel like I experienced that. I wanted to be a doctor. I for whatever reason, wanted to be a pediatric oncologist. I mean, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be this famous doctor who made all this money. I grew up poor. I wanted to make all this money. And of course, please Jesus in the process, right? It's all good Christians want to do. When I have big houses, a pretty wife, a great family, great cars. Oh, and yes, please Jesus as I do it. I had everything worked out in my head. And then God intervened. Whereas I felt at the beginning, God got in the way and altered my life. Next thing I know, instead of going and becoming a pediatric oncologist, I'm in Chino, living the best life I can imagine. 
I got to ask you, as you've been processing your life, has there ever been a time where God intervened? Where God began instituting his plans for you and altering your plans for you? See, that's what Paul's describing. Man, I was headlong in this area. I was opposed to God. I, in my head, it made sense. I was pleasing God. I was protecting God. I was zealous for God. Everything was going great. I was on my way to persecute more people. And then God intervened. And Paul said, and he changed my life. There's two things in Paul's testimony. He mentioned his religious zeal, but then he went into his powerful conversion There's two things about his conversion he wants you to know. Number one, that God was the one who pursued him. Do you see that? In all of Paul's training, and all of his education, and all of his circumcisions, and all of his stuff, it was God who pursued him. He was on the road to Damascus. God went after him. It wasn't Paul's knowledge. It wasn't Paul pursuing God. It wasn't Paul reaching some new level of spirituality. It wasn't Paul cracking some biblical code. It was God pursuing him. I mean, that's been a key tenet of Paul's message throughout Scripture. Look what he said in Ephesians. It says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. Man, it's not something you do. It's a gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. Look at what he says to the Romans. While we're still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Man, while we were still living in the gutter, Christ died for us. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even die. He continues, but God demonstrates his own love towards us that in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Man, Paul said, listen, your salvation is not about your works, your gifts, your stuff. Well, I had everything worked out in my life. But God intervened. God pursued me. God changed my life, my direction, my path. First part of his powerful conversion, Paul says, God pursued me. But Paul isn't done. Paul says, God also uses believers. God didn't just pursue me, but God brought other believers into my life. Look at his testimony continues, verse 12. A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, standing near, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. That very time I looked at him. And he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you delay? Get up, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. Paul says, you want to know about my conversion? Number one, started with God. God pursued me. I didn't pursue God. God pursued me. But second, he said, God used other believers in my life. God could have healed Saul's vision, couldn't he? But God used Ananias. 
I love it. He says, Ananias, a devout man by the standard of the law, a term devout, someone who is pious, committed, sincere in his faith in God. Paul in his testimony is like, look, it's not just me who believes this stuff. Ananias, you all know Ananias. You all respect him. You believe in his heart for God. He ministered to me. God used him to heal me. God used him to move me along in my salvation. God used Ananias to impact my life. Got me to thinking this week, who are people that God brought into my life to influence me? Hey, you know, number one, my grandfather. Man, God used my grandfather to be a key instrument in my faith journey early on. I remember when I became the lead pastor here, I was somewhat nervous about it. And if they're honest, most of the elders were nervous about it too. Maybe a lot of you were nervous as well. And there was a pastor of a large church in another city who approached me and said, hey, Brian, I'd love to encourage you and help you and be a part of your ministry. Man, I got to tell you, my relationship with Bill Inkerberg up at Whittier was really a key influence in me as a young pastor. I mean, he demonstrated to me generosity, patience, mercy. When as a young pastor, I tended to freak out, it was Bill Ankerberg who was telling me to be calm and relax. Man, I, I was going through my life and God used multiple individuals to influence me along my life. Can I ask you, who has God brought into your life? Who did God bring into your life that walked you along the way, that influenced you, that kept you on the path of righteousness? I encourage you, if you come up with those names, do you ever email them, text them, call them, write them a note, whatever your instrument of choice is? I can't really talk much to my grandpa, he's in heaven but I connect with Bill regularly, thanking him for the impact he had on my life. For some of you, if you come up with a name of someone who influenced you, impacted you, kept you moving, send them a text, write them a note, let them know that God used them in your life. Now, some of you might be like, Brian, I can't think of one. I've been walking this journey with the Lord all by myself. It's lonely. It's miserable. Man, I, wanna, I just want to encourage you. Will you, in the comment card, in the seat back in front of you, just write your name and number and just say, I need someone to encourage me. I don't know anyone who has been successful in their Christian life alone. Now, if you know of someone, please don't email me their name. I'm sure that someone has done it. I've never met them. I've never met them who are successful in their Christian life alone. I mean, if you feel like, Brian, I have no one to influence my life, put your name and number. We have a ton of people. I would love to help you find someone who can encourage you. The Apostle Paul in describing his conversion. So I was like, listen, you want to know what Jesus did in my life? 
I mean, I was zealous. I was on this path, but God intervened. He pursued me. He brought people into my life and put me on the path, but there's one last part of his testimony, a third part. God didn't just save him and then say, okay, Paul, now you're good. Now just hide away and pray, Lord Jesus, quickly come and be about your life. God gave him a message, a divine vision, a mission Look at verse 17. It happened when I returned to Jerusalem, was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance and saw him, Jesus, saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. When the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he said, go, go for I'll send you far away to the Gentiles. Paul's like, listen, after God saved me, he gave me a mission. I wanted to stay here with you, Paul said. Jesus said, they're not gonna accept your testimony. And Paul says, but that's because they know the old me. I wanna show them the new me. What you've done in my life, the change in my message, I wanna show them. And God says, nope, get I'm gonna send you to the Gentiles. Paul had this heart to reach the Jews. And I was reminded, you know, that's the same heart that Jesus had. It's a reminder of something Jesus said in Matthew. Listen to the words of Jesus. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stoned those who were sent to her. This is Jesus' words. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are unwilling Behold, your house has been left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even Jesus in his earthly ministry is like, man, how much I wanted this for you. But now I'm gonna go to the Gentiles. Paul says the same thing. I had this heart for you. My desire is to help you see who Jesus is. But God sent me. God sent me to the Gentiles. As soon as he said that, everyone went bananas again. I want to show you the two different responses, quickly, two different responses to Paul's testimony Look at verse 22. They listened to him up to this statement. Like everyone was listening to him. Everyone was following along. Everyone understood like he had the hearts of the people. They listened to him up to that statement. But as soon as he said, God sent me to the Gentiles, they raised their voices and said, away with such a pillow from the earth, for he shall not be allowed to live. Man, that's not just rejection, that's denial. Paul says, God sent me to the Gentiles and the Jews, the entire crowd erupts. No, God would never do that. God would never go after the Gentiles. God would never send you them. God's heart isn't global. God's heart's for us. And instantly, as soon as they hear Paul's message, listen, I'm out to bring the Gentiles in. Everyone went bananas. No, that isn't something God would do. That isn't something God wants, and that's not anything we want. And again, it reminded me of the same response they had towards Jesus decades earlier. You remember that? 
Let's flip in our Bibles real quick. Put your thumb in Acts. Flip over to the left of the Gospel of Luke. Third book of the New Testament, Luke chapter 23. Just an interesting point. The Gospel of Luke is part one. Acts is part two. Acts is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. Same author of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Luke is part one. Acts is part two. Luke chapter 23. Starting in verse 13, right? Jesus has already been bounced around from place to place. Look what happened. Let me remind you of this. Pilate summoned the chief priests. I'm in verse 13 of Luke 23. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I found no guilt in this man regarding the charges. You're making stuff up, he said. Verse 15, no, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I'll punish him and release him. Verse 18, but they cried out together, away with this man. Same phrase, away with this man, release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. We're not interested in Jesus who is about souls. Give us Barabbas, he's a zealot. At least he's someone about our lives today. We want Barabbas and his life instead of Jesus and his life. It wasn't just rejection, it was denial. The same thing's happening. Let's turn back to Acts chapter 21. Paul comes up and says, listen, God changed my life and sent me the Gentiles. And everyone says, no, that's not what God wants. That's not what God wants. And we went over this last week. Remember, God's heart has always been global. His heart has always been all the nations. When he met with Abraham and told him to go, his promise to Abraham, you'll be a blessing to all the nations. When Israel came to the mountain after their release from Egypt and God met with them, he said, I will make you a priest and my people, my holy nation over everybody else. You're going to be an instrument for me for the rest of the world. When Peter talked to the early church, he used that same motif. God's interested in the nations and even in Revelation. When John has an image of the people of God, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, praising God together. God's heart has always been about the nations. These people just denied it. Paul, after all of his life, after his testimony, we have this idea that people will understand and somehow repent. We have this desire that this crowds of people after a rousing sermon, that suddenly these people would respond. And he did respond in denial. Kill him. Like we're so uh, done with Paul, the world doesn't even need him. Not even take him away. Take him away from the earth. He shouldn't even live for saying what he said. The Jews were in denial. But I want to show you one last part. Verse 23. 
As they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust in the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him. Verse 25, but when they stretched him out with thongs, they, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and condemned? When the, or uncondemned, verse 26, when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and said, hey, what do you want me to do? This man's a Roman citizen. The commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? Paul said, yes. The commander answered, well, I bought mine. I bribed an official for my citizenship. Paul said, well, I was born a citizen. Therefore, those who are about to examine him immediately let him go. Commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman because he had put him in chains. Look at verse 30 again. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set them before him. I mean, all of this pain, all of this suffering, God still orchestrates another opportunity for Paul to give his testimony. Man, it's such a great model for us. That Paul lived his life. People are lying about him, falsely accusing him. He gets arrested, he gets beaten, but his desire is still to give testimony of who God is. He gives a testimony to who God is. Everyone rejects him. I mean, at what point does Paul say, okay, this isn't working, I'm done. But God orchestrates another opportunity. And we'll get into that next week. There's two encouragements I want to give you as we're finished. So I think Paul gives us two models, two models for us. Number one, Paul used his citizenship as an instrument of God. Paul used his citizenship as an instrument of God, not for evil, not for his benefit, but Paul used his Roman citizenship as an instrument. Anytime it helped him further along the gospel, God used it. And as I've been going through Acts and studying Paul the last couple of years, I'm thinking, what a great model for us. For those of us who are American citizens, I want to encourage you, use your citizenship as an instrument of God. Not an instrument of evil or division, but of God. You're thinking, Brian, I don't know how to do this. The elders and I went through scripture. I mean, we spent time. What does the Bible say about people in our environment, about people like us who are American citizens? What are we supposed to do with it? And we came up with these principles of politics. And these brochures are available for you at the info center. If you're like, Brian, I don't know what God wants for me. I feel like there's so many people talking to you as an American citizen who's a Christian, telling you what you ought to do, who you ought to vote for, how you ought to do it. My question is, what has God said to you? How to utilize your citizenship for the glory of God as an instrument for his kingdom, for his glory. If you don't know how, grab that brochure on your way out. If you want to talk about it, great, let's talk about it. It's not party-driven. It's not venue-driven. It's just biblically-driven. Five principles that God gave us as believers in Scripture, how we as citizens should be using our position for God's glory. The last thing, 
The last model that Paul gave us is he was always ready to give a response for the hope that's in him. Paul was always desiring to give his testimony. He'll endure pain. He'll endure suffering. He'll do it after people are mean to him. He'll do it before people are mean to him. Paul was always available to give a response for the hope that's within him. My question for you, where do you need this attitude in your life? Look at how Paul describes it, 2 Corinthians. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. This is the words of Jesus to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Paul says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I mean, Paul comes in and says, listen, it's not about me. Like, I am happy to give my testimony in hardship, in easy times, difficult times, challenging times, before being beaten, after being beaten. I will endure all of it for Christ's sake. Because that's when God shows up and does great things. My question is, where do you need this attitude in your life? This model, this testimony. Maybe for some of you, you're in a difficult spot in your family, in your marriage, with your children. You've had a lifetime of talking about God, but now in the midst of the challenge of your family, you have an opportunity to give a testimony of your faith. Will you do it? Some of you might be in school, you feel like you're a minority. Everyone's against God. Everyone's moving on in their new path. But this is your opportunity. Maybe God has you in your institution, in your school, in your business to make known the glory of God in your life. How God pursued you, the people that God has surrounded you with, the changes God has made in your life. Maybe you're in a position where you have influence. Maybe God has brought one person in your life where everyone's wondered how you could be friends. You have nothing in common. You don't even like the same things, and yet this person and you have been together for decades, and no one knows why. Maybe it's for this one opportunity that God wants to use you to open their eyes Peter says, always be ready to give a response for the hope that's within you. Paul modeled it. And he knew difficulty was coming. He embraced the opportunity in hopes that God would use him to bring himself glory. Who can you testify of God to? Let's pray. God, as a church, we come before you, God, many of us, most of us, maybe even all of us. God, we're here because we believe in your power. We know what you have done in our lives. And God, we even know in our heart what you desire us to do. But God, we confess to you sometimes in our culture, sometimes in the busyness of our life, in the craziness of our community, in the challenging times of our culture, God, at times it 
We tend to want to just cower away and just wait for you to return. God, I pray you give us the boldness that you gave Paul. God, I'm grateful that you pursued us. God, those of us who are saved, those of us who have recognized your mercy, God, I'm grateful for your love of us, that while we were at our worst, you offered us your mercy and your forgiveness. And God, if there's people here today that have yet to see you as I do, God, who still try to pursue you, reach you, somehow earn your love, God, may you open their eyes, may you pursue them the way you did Paul, the way you did me. God, may you bring people into their lives that would encourage them, direct them, inspire them, minister to them. God, I pray for boldness for those of us who know you. Open our eyes to see the world as you do, as Paul did, that we'd be ready to give a response of what you've done in our lives, what you've called us to. God, give us courage to endure difficulty and challenge if need be. God, give us ears to hear your spirit, eyes to see people, their hearts as you do. Mouths that are bold and courageous to proclaim your glory. God, that we might follow the model of Paul and be prepared to testify of your greatness in every opportunity. We pray everything in Jesus' name.